And I did that because you know you've been wanting to clap, and I knew that. I'm Carla Hayden, CEO of the Enoch Pratt Free Library, and I want to start off by telling you that clock is wrong, <laughs> okay? It's only a few minutes after two, and we are delighted that you could join us for this very special day. This is the Pratt Library's annual Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. commemorative lecture, and this afternoon it is our honor to have as our speaker and you can tell uh, my background, I'm about to say the right reverend, but the reverend doctor, Jamal Harrison Bryant. Applause again. <laughs> Founder and leader of Baltimore's Empowerment Temple Church. Now the Pratt's uh, commemorative lecture is just one of the ways that the library makes sure that the legacy and the message of Dr. King stays alive and his message of hope is everlasting and we hope that you will remember the words and the inspiration throughout the year, not just on this special occasion. Um, it also is the kickoff of the library's Black History Month events, and we want to just make sure that you know about the Book Lovers Breakfast featuring the civil rights pioneer, Congressman John Lewis, on February 1st. And tickets are still available, and he is introducing his first graphic novel based on his own experiences, and so we are delighted that he will join us. Now, Today's lecture, Dr. Jamal Bryan, is also an author. And as a librarian, and I warned some people in the audience already, I love this because he is the author of four books with more than 100,000 soul. And those of you who don't know about publishing, 100,000 soul is pretty good. <laughs> and most notably for his book, World War Me, it won the African American Publishers Award, and that is really also to note. So, you can add to that number because the books will be available for you to purchase uh, immediately after the program at a reception on the second floor, and we hope you will join us for that. Now, before we hear from our guest, we have another special guest that's here to present a special proclamation. Would you please welcome Delegate Jolene Ivey from Maryland's 47th District. Thank you so much, Dr. Hayden. It's a great honor to be here and in such a beautiful building. I love history, I love historic buildings, and this one is just spectacular. So it's a privilege to be here. And it seems like a fitting place to have such a, uh, a serious and wonderful occasion. I have two proclamations. One is from the Attorney General of the State of Maryland, and it is for you, Dr. Hayden. Oh, wow. <laughs> so if you'll come first. This says, um, Office of the Attorney General, State of Maryland, Douglas F. Gansler, Attorney General. Enoch Pratt Free Library. On behalf of the Attorney General and the citizens of the state of Maryland, in recognition of the Enoch Pratt Free Library's dedicated efforts to commemorate the life and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., 
and carry out Dr. King's dream for the future into the present, we are pleased to confer this cer certificate of recognition in the city of Baltimore and the state of Maryland on the 18th day of January in the year 2014. Attorney General of Maryland, Douglas Gansler. I also have one for the Reverend Dr. Jamal Bryant. I know everyone was surprised by that, right? <laughs> the Maryland General Assembly official citation, be it hereby known to all that sincerest congratulations are offered to Reverend Dr. Jamal Bryant in recognition of his pioneering innovative mission as pastor of Empowerment Temple, instilling the call for prosperity to fellow man, woman, and child educationally, culturally, socially, and spiritually in the name of God. Presented on this 18th day of January 2014 by Delegate Jolene Ivey, Prince George's County Legislative District 47. Thank you, Delegate Ivy. We really appreciate you making the effort to be here. And um, I have to tell you, the Pratt citation will be framed and available for viewing in the hallway. Well, we know we've kept you waiting long enough, but I just have to add one more word about our speaker today. Many of you know that sometimes um, inspiring people under certain ages <laughs> And I won't, as I get to those ages, it, it, they get younger and younger, um, is, is difficult in today's world. And what our speaker today has been able to do is to reach out and inspire and motivate a new generation of believers, non-believers, and also of pastors. And so for that alone, we are grateful that he has redefined the ministry and is a leader of a church that has really expanded with members to a phenomenal degree. So please welcome the great inspirator, the great motivator, Dr. Jamal Bryant. Thank you so much. This is uh, probably uh, the first time uh, in my life I can say I'm glad to be here. Uh, on, uh, on Saturday mornings, my mother would bring my sister and I here uh, at 10 o'clock in the morning uh, and make us study all day. And I'm talking about in the summertime when school was out. Uh, and so for me to come back here is a bittersweet uh, a moment for me. I could give anybody in here a tour of this library, uh, but I'm, I'm thankful and grateful uh, for the privilege. Uh, let me thank uh, the Enoch Pratt uh, Library for maintaining uh, a losing legacy of literacy. Uh, because uh, we're raising a, a generation uh, that now speaks in abbreviation. 
uh, and has no idea what punctuation is. Uh, and so we thank God really just for the gift of books, the gift of learning, uh, and the gift of literacy. Uh, and I want to thank the city of Baltimore for keeping this incredible historic landmark open. Let's celebrate. Uh, let's celebrate that privilege. Uh, to be in a library, to know that not that many years uh, ago it was illegal for African Americans to have a book uh, or to hold a pencil uh, or deep, to speak deep significance uh, for all of us uh, on today. Um, I want to uh, take, uh, we've got two different uh, generations here. Uh, strikingly, if you look around this room, uh, you, you've got Motown and uh, you got Def Jam in the same room. Uh, and uh, so there, uh, there, there are some uh, new insights and revelations uh, for one generation and then a refresher course uh, for those who were privileged to live through it. Uh, for, for my generation, they are uh, excited about the potential reunion uh, of a rap group called Outcast. Uh, that they're finally uh, getting ready to go back on the road after many years of not recording or performing together. Uh, but January 26, 1970, uh, a new song was uh, released on the airwaves that took uh, America by storm, crossing ethnic lines. It was a song by uh, then group Simon and Garfunkel. Uh, and they had a song that says, when you're weary and feeling small, when tears are in your eye, I'll dry them all. I'm on your side. When times get rough and friends cannot be found, like a bridge over troubled waters, I'll lay me down. What is interesting, ladies and gentlemen, is that that was their last song released together. It was the last time they were in the studio. And it took about 25 years after that before they were ever seen in public as one group. The critical question you've got to ask yourself is as that song was on the Billboard charts for 26 weeks, sold at that time 325,000 copies, which was stellar and landmark. And it's hard for you to digest that when every week somebody's selling a million. Uh, but 325,000 in 1970, uh, was a breakthrough experience. And the critical question that had to be raised is what happened to the bridge they sang about if they couldn't even stay together? Uh, did they mean the song or did the song lose its meaning? And the reality is around that same time, black people began to replay the songs of the movement and wonder whether, whether or not it was a song or whether it really had sincerity. Same question had to be asked for those who were walking past the church when they heard our songs, was it just a song or did it really mean anything? And did it mean anything because after the song was over, we seemingly never stuck together. We didn't stay together as a team, we didn't forge together as a group, and it's taken us years to be able to be seen in one place. 49 years ago, 600 civil rights demonstrators uh, headed east on U.S. Route 80. It was uh, March 7, 1965, and it was their intention to cross the Edmund Pettus Bridge. They only made it six blocks. 
Only six blocks before Governor Wallace got on the phone and ordered state police, state troopers, don't let them go another step further. They were warned summarily to please stop in your tracks, and John Lewis, who was amongst that 600, said that we are going to move forward. Why? Because we're marching for Equal Voting Rights Act law protection under the law. They said, if you go another step further, we're going to unleash fire hoses and barking dogs and billy sticks. And as a consequence, over 75 of that 600 were in intensive care. Should be noted that children nor mothers were spared. It became known in history as Bloody Sunday. That Bloody Sunday was a striking and a turning point in black America's civil rights history because this was the dawn of television. So for many people who lived in Baltimore, New York, Connecticut, Chicago, Canada, who had no idea how vicious racism was, to turn on the ABC News with Walter Cronkite and see hundreds of young people running through the streets fearing for dear life, this said that this really was a stark contrast from the land of the free and the home of the brave. Now, you've got to put in your mind that this is before Facebook. It's before Twitter. There are no text messages. There are no cell phones. So one of the deacons who was able to escape drove, ladies and gentlemen, and kept driving till he got to the church of Martin Luther King, Jr. He got to his church, and Dr. King is still in his robe, and he tells him, you've got to come quick. There's a riot getting ready to break out. Dr. King, not even having an opportunity to change his clothes, drove with his robe still on till he could get to Selma. When he got to Selma, he said to them, we've got to organize and get to a place to understand that the nation must see that voting is a right. It is not the privilege of some. It ought to be the right for all. Now, you'll notice that there is a stark contrast in the demonstration of Dr. King's leadership and the leadership we presently have. When Dr. King found out about it, notice he did not have a press conference. When Dr. King heard about it, he did not send a representative, but he went straight to the place where the blood was still fresh, giving a stark contrast of where we are today in the glaring reality of the absence of leadership. This was, in fact, going to be a pulverizing, pivotal moment in the doctrine and philosophy of Dr. King because he was having to speak nonviolence, hear this, in a violent context. That America had to see, what are you going to do, not hypothetically, but if somebody hits you, if somebody hits the woman next to you, if dogs begin to gnaw on the heels of a 13-year-old, and so this was a conviction as to whether or not is this philosophy or is it praxis? It was, in fact, a crucible moment in the doctrine and the philosophy of Martin Luther King Jr. to see whether or not what it is that he preached was really possible. This is far away from a lunch counter in Greensboro, North Carolina. This is a long distance from some students marching in Nashville but right at the head of the movement. And because of what it is that took place on that Bloody Sunday, two days later, March 9th, 
Dr. King led another march. He led another march, and this march, instead of 600, there were 2,500. And he felt that momentum was building. And with that momentum building, he wanted to make sure, and because he was not proof positive, hear this, about his own philosophy and praxis right there in the South, he said, I need to make sure I have protection under the law. So he said, before we march again, let's go right now to the court. So they went, here it is, they went to the circuit court, the Sixth Circuit Court of Alabama, and stood before Judge Frank Johnson Thomas, and he weighed in as to whether or not their assembly was legal or not. After it is that they recessed and the judge returned, he said that there is a right for mobility, and mobility is not the same as a march. I better park here, is that a lot of us have marches but no mobility. If you are marching, but it is not taking you anywhere, you are just taking a brisk walk. But every march has to have an agenda. Over the last 20 years, we've had a lot of marches, but not much mobility. As a consequence, if you'll go two blocks from here, you'll see a scathing disproportionment of those who are, in fact, homeless and disenfranchised. Why? Because we've marched, but not a lot of movement. You have seen when there was a shifting of power, of the browning of power in America. If you go to Los Angeles, you go to Charlotte, you go to Houston, you go to Atlanta. Here it is. Whenever it is that African-Americans have assumed power, there was a shift in the economy. There's very few millionaires in Baltimore. Very few, so much so that if you're doing well, they assume one of two things. Either you work for Johns Hopkins or you play for the Ravens uh, because we have not done real economic development. I think that it is important for us to know so that we do not shrink wrap Dr. King into a I have a dream speech. His legacy is a whole lot larger than that. When Dr. King died, he died pulling together the poor people's campaign saying that what is the purpose of having civil rights if we do not have silver rights? Something has to happen, and it would, in fact, do a grave disservice for Dr. King to be alive today and to drive through inner-city Baltimore and notice that banks won't put branches in our community, just check-cashing stations. He would be unnerved to know that we have not found out how to recycle our own dollar. That if, in fact, you go in the Jewish community, a dollar will recycle 17 times, but a black dollar will not circle once. Won't circle once, and how could it? You cash your check, and after you cash your check, it's Arabs that are selling Kennedy fried chicken. You're getting your hair from Koreans. You're getting your nails from Filipinos. You're not talking back to me. We really don't believe in it when the only, the only evidence of economic empowerment is the beauty salon, the barbershop, the funeral home, and the black church, and we are not seeing it recycled out of that. And so when it is that he marched the third time, they went from 600 to 2,500, hear this, to 30,000. 30,000 people marched this last time. I'm proud to say to you today, as we commemorate and celebrate uh, this great uh, man, Martin Luther King Jr., amongst that 30,000 was my grandfather, Bishop Harrison James Bryant, 
who at the time was the vice president of the Baltimore chapter, the NAACP. He and Juanita Jackson Mitchell got on the van from Bethel AME Church and drove all the way to Alabama just so that they could march. Something significant happens when there is unity, but there's only unity when there is a vision. They walked over that bridge, ladies and gentlemen, some 25, some 30,000, low estimates suggest. And it is because of that that we had the passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, giving everybody the opportunity to be able to vote. Now, fast forward. And when you fast forward, you will now notice how far it is, not that we've come, but how far it is that we have to go. Uh, because now, some 49 years later, the Voting Rights Act is now under jeopardy, particularly Section 5. Section 5 suggests before any state can make any modification on the right to vote, they have to seek out federal counsel. But now states are doing it independently. They're doing this so that they can disenfranchise African-Americans, minorities from the polls, please hear me, because they understand significantly what will take place if you have your mind on right and go to vote. Notice they did not ask for picture ID when Ronald Reagan got elected. They didn't ask for ID when either of the Bushes were elected. But as soon as a black man breaks into the White House, then the law has to be shifted and changed to make sure that that never happens again. Something has to happen in Baltimore when our last electoral turnout, Senator Ivey, was just under 12% in a city, watch this, with a black mayor, a black controller, and a black president of the city council, which suggests to us 12 years of a slave is not a movie. It is a really a reality for every person who still lives below North Avenue. So now when you deal with where it is that we've come from and all the more where it is that we have to go, uh, let's do a cross analysis. And the cross analysis would in fact take us from the bloody Sunday 49 years ago. And many of you would suggest I've never been to Selma. I've never been to Montgomery. And so I have absolutely no idea. A third of those of you who are in this room weren't even alive, including myself, during the march. So let's fast forward. And we fast forward. We'll go to another bridge. And this bridge is September 9th, 2013. September the 9th, 2013, Governor Chris Christie is on his way to a landslide victory. And in doing so, there is, in fact, a mayor who does not endorse him. So whether or not he made the call or not is still in shades of gray, but it will, in fact, be discovered in just a few days. Uh, but the Christie's deputy director, Bridget Kelly, made a phone call to David Wildstein over at the Port Authority and notice what she said. She said, this is it. It's time for traffic problems. It's time for traffic problems. And I want to stop all of the traffic coming out of Fort Lake. So they then had to merge three lanes into one, causing a backup. A bridge, ladies and gentlemen, is very simply defined as a structure that will take you from one place into another. And they made up in their mind, in order to stop progress, block the bridge. This is the same thing. We don't live in New Jersey. We live in Baltimore. But I'm trying to figure out who from Governor Christie's office called the Department of Education. 
because somebody must have called the Department of Education and says too many of them are graduating. Let's stop the bridge. If we stop the bridge, here it is, we'll stop their thinking. If we stop their thinking, here it is, they won't be able to manifest change. So here's what we'll do in a lagging school system. We won't give them diplomas. We'll give them certificates of completion. Who stopped the bridge? Who stopped the bridge? I don't know who it is that called city council to offer the piece of legislation that would suggest in Baltimore you can get more money by being a freshman garbage collector than being a tenured public school teacher. I don't know who called the bridge. Who called the bridge to suggest too many people are going over? To suggest that we would, in fact, put in place to build a $50 million juvenile detention center, but we don't have any new public elementary schools. Who's stopping the bridge? Who's stopping the bridge that the same amount of high school dropout rates is the same amount of prison incarceration in Baltimore City? Who stopped the bridge? We stopped the bridge from three lanes to one, which means that we are minimizing our options and our alternatives. It is a crying shame that we now interviewing our young people, ask them, what do you think is the greatest prospect for your future? They would suggest making it to 18, making it to 19. One of the greatest insults that will, in fact, be a black eye on Chris Christie's administration is that in the middle of the bridge being shut down, please hear me, 91-year-old Florence Geneva died. She died, why? Waiting on the ambulance to show up. What I want to say to the younger generation who is present, how many of our ancestors will have to die in a shame and embarrassment? As they look at us raising the logical question, is this what I march for? Did I march for your pants to be down to your knees? Is this, is this what I march for so that you can't conjugate verbs? Is this what I march for that you got gold teeth and nickel-plated brains? Is this what I march for that you got tattoos all over your body but have no conviction in your heart? Is this what I march for for us to start 118 HBCUs and 76 of them are in danger of closing? Is this what I march for? It was not just that she was fighting for life, but no assistance was coming. No assistance was coming, ladies and gentlemen. Why? Because the ambulance couldn't get over the bridge. You have to understand, ladies and gentlemen, that according, here it is, uh, to the uh, Motor Vehicles Administration in Maryland, the reality is the ambulance in a minivan is the exact same vehicle. An ambulance and a minivan is the exact same miracle. They the exact same vehicle. They have the exact same wheelbase. They take the exact same amount of gas. Have the exact same Hemi engine. Hear me. The only thing that separates a minivan from an ambulance is a sound. And when a sound goes forth, everything that's in its way has got to move. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. made up in his mind he would not be a regular minister. Because to be a regular minister would reduce himself to just having a minivan existence. But he said, in order for me to change injustice and racism in America, I've got to sound the alarm. 
And if you'll listen intently in 2014, you'll notice that this is the soundtrack of Silence for the Lambs. Because we can hear absolutely no voice suggesting to us, clear the runway. This is an emergency. Somebody else has got to come forth. What made Dr. King great, what made him stellar, is going over the bridge where blood was. And here's the reality, ladies and gentlemen, it took really not that much courage to stand right there to, uh, to give the I Have a Dream speech. There were, in fact, federal police officers everywhere, 250,000 black people who had his back. But to be in Selma, Alabama, knowing that here it is, deputies were armed with the right to beat you with absolutely no repercussion. He was standing in the faith of face of injustice, saying this is what real ministry is supposed to look like. I would suggest to you, ladies and gentlemen, that the reason in half, in part, that we marvel at the exemplar example of Dr. King is that in this hour, we have very few preachers who stand in that same lamplight. You could, in fact, be tied to your living room couch. And for 24 hours straight, watch Christian television that did not exist in 1965. And for 24 hours straight, if you were armed to a chair by chain and ball and watch TBN or the Word Network for 24 hours, you'll hear not one message about voting rights. Not one message about educational disparity. Not one message about universal health care. Not one message about mass incarceration. Not one message about stop and frisk. Not one message about more money being placed on special education rather than the gifted and talented program. So we come to church and we turn to our neighbor. We give each other a high five, do the electric slide down the aisle, and and somebody is asking, when will you sing the song? Like a bridge over troubled waters. I'll be right there. And so because we do not have a present example, all we can do is get stuck in a time machine and ask if Dr. King was here, what would he do? Woe unto a generation that would need an 80-year-old to lead a revolution. Uh, that we don't have anybody standing on the front line to say enough already. Jeremiah Wright gives us the warm advisement, everybody who's your color is not your kind. Uh, that there has got to be something within us that provokes that there must be change. Ladies and gentlemen, because I am a carrier of the gospel, I cannot, in fact, just do a survey of sociology and not give an application of theology. In Mark chapter 4, you'll notice uh, that Jesus gives them the instruction. He says to them, let's go to the other side. His commandment to them is the same commandment to us. Where we are, we've been docked long enough. This is the place for us to make transition. This is the place for us to make a shift. Midterm elections are coming up are you gonna do anything are you gonna stay here or are we gonna go to the other side let's go to the other side ladies and gentlemen where we are not just in fact black during black history month but all year we understand that we are wonderfully blessed he said let's go to the other side and when he said let's go to the other side read it when you get home the bible declares that when they're halfway there smaller ships went with them 
something is wrong. If, in fact, Jesus only took the big ship he was on, here it is, he would have practiced elitism. He would have gotten into the small circle of the black bourgeois. But he understood, with me going over, it is not good enough for me to go by myself. But Fannie Lou Hamer said, why sing we shall overcome if we not helping somebody else overcome with us? So let me take some smaller ships. And while they were in the middle of the water, ladies and gentlemen, a storm broke out. You'll notice the storm didn't break out as long as they were parked. It was only when they were making movement. It was only when they were trying to go somewhere. It was only when they were trying to find a difference that they, in fact, had to encounter a storm. I don't know whether or not you have studied the typology or the pattern, the pathos, if you would, of terrorists. But you'll notice, ladies and gentlemen, that terrorists never attack parks. They never have put a bomb at bus stops. They only attack, watch this, areas where people are going somewhere. Airports and train stations. Wherever there is, in fact, movement, there's going to be an attack. The reason why you're not under attack is because the enemy doesn't feel threatened. That there has to be something in you that suggests not just me, but I'm taking the entire community with me. In 1972, J. Edgar Hoover, who was then the director of the FBI, said that the greatest threat to America's democracy was the Black Panther Party. He said this in 1972, ladies and gentlemen, when at that time, the Black Panther Party only had 76 paid members. 76 people in Oakland, California, the greatest threat to America's democracy. Why? Because in the morning, they would feed children before they went to school. A threat. Why? Because they could patrol their own neighborhoods. A threat. Why? Because after school, the children would get off the street and find out how they could expand their minds and understand the rich legacy that they came out of. Seventy-six people were a threat, and now we got mega churches with seven, nine, ten thousand people and a threat to nobody. If just the people in this room would have a mind for transition and change, it would be a threat. The storm rose. And when the storm rose, Jesus was awakened. He was awakened and they asked him, carest thou not if we perish? Notice, ladies and gentlemen, that the master never sleeps nor slumbers, so they were waking up the gift that was in him. Might I suggest to you that this might be the hour to sound the alarm in our anthropological ambulance to wake up a generation that's sleeping on the job that doesn't even realize that we're going to hell in a handbasket unless the movement wakes back up. Somebody has got to wake up our daughters so that they understand they're more than little Kim, Kim Kardashian, and Nicki Minaj. Somebody has got to wake up our sons. There's more to their life than, than being little Wayne and being Kanye West and being anybody else. That there's more to their destiny than dribbling a basketball and throwing a football. But the most dangerous weapon they have is their mind. But you won't wake them up. Wake them up and let them understand it's their time. To take the baton. Jesus got up. And when he got up. He never addressed the disciples. He addressed the societal elements. He spoke to the winds. And to the waves. Peace. Be still. He wasn't really talking to water. 
He was speaking to prescriptions of Prozac and Ritalin. Peace be still. He he was talking, here it is, uh, to truancy officers. And the only male that your child sees all school day is the gym teacher and the parole officer. Peace be still. And at his word, everything sat still. Ladies and gentlemen, there are two instances by which we see this same narrative. The same pericope is found in two different gospels. In this one, Jesus is on the boat. But if you'll jaywalk over to the Gospel of Luke, you'll notice another account. And in that account, notice this, that Jesus is not on the boat. He's not on the boat. He sees the storm and starts walking towards it. And walking towards it, Peter sees it. Sees him and says, Master, if that's you, bid me to come. Pastor Brian, I was with you, but somehow or another I've lost you. Let me see if I can find you. Here's where I want to find you. In 1970, here it is, Simon and Garfunkel had a bridge over troubled waters. In 1965, you will notice, ladies and gentlemen, Martin Luther King Jr. and 25,000 had the Edmund Pettus Bridge. It's September the 9th, 2013, Chris Christie, here it is, had the Fort Lee Bridge. But if you'll go back into the annals of time and find what happened in the gospel. When there was a storm, when the elements were against movement, Peter realized something that many of us in this generation are now discovering. There's no bridge. And because there was no bridge, Peter walked out as a lone revolutionary and said, bid me to walk on the water. And Jesus said to him, if this is what you want, you can walk and do what I do. And Peter got out of the boat. And when he got out of the boat, he began to walk and he made one problem. The one problem is he took his eyes off God. And when he took his eyes off God, he began to sink. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the summation of what has happened to black people living in America. God gave us the authority and the power to walk, but we took our eyes off of him. And when we took our eyes off of him, that's when our community began to sink. But you'll notice this, that when he began to sing, Jesus took him by the hand and helped him to walk again. The reason why we ought not be dismayed is that even while we are drowning as a people and as a community, if we put our hand back in the hand of God, we do not even need Dr. King. We need the children of Dr. King to realize that they are a royal priesthood and a chosen generation. If you can't find the bridge, just walk on water. That is the responsibility for our generation and the responsibility for where we are. Thank you so much and God bless you. I think. Yes. Yes. Thank you. All right. We're going to do about 10 minutes of Q&A. So if you have a question, come to the podium. Or if you have a question, you want to come to the podium? For, you have a question? All right. Dr. Bryan, thank you so much for that uh, thank you, sir. eloquent lecture. Thank, thank you, you so much. You opened up talking about Def Jam and Motown. Yes. And then you said much about a bridge. Yes. Uh, Dr. Garner Taylor came to uh, this city some years ago when he said that the thing that 
kept the, the unity of the movement moving was a song. Mm -hmm. And we've lost our song. And to bridge the gap between Def Jam and Motown generations, what do you suppose would, would, would bring that, that unity of sound to bring us together? Yes. Uh, anthropologists would suggest to know the psychosis of a people, uh, find out what music they listen to. Uh, and so when you uh, talk about over my head, I hear music in the air before I be a slave, we shall overcome. That was the soundtrack of their spiritual synergy. Uh, as a consequence, there is a very few, if any, uh, positive music on the radio that reflects uh, any direction of movement. The second thing I want to add to that, and I'm coming uh, to your question, this is the very first uh, generation that has lent uh, entertainers the power of leadership. Uh, no, nobody, uh, you, you had during the civil rights movement, you still had the whispers, you still had the spinners, but nobody was asking them to speak on policy. Uh, so we, we are now lending ourselves to Jay-Z to talk about discrimination. Uh, it is the absence of leadership. And so uh, we have a responsibility. Uh, I'm working now on a project to bring some artists together uh, to try to produce an album that will change the sound. Uh, but these are artists who are already know T.I. Common, uh, Jill Scott, Lauren Hill, uh, to do an, a compilation album that will change uh, the direction of music, uh, but it also has to change the mind frame uh, of our children and uh, uh, to whom much is given, much is required. You, I, I want to give you a historical uh, footnote. Uh, is a few years ago uh, after the Thriller album, uh, Michael Jackson had another album and uh, he had one line uh, that said, Jew me. Uh, he said that in the Jewish community, riled up, uh, and they had to pull the record off the shelves. He had to re-record the whole album because of that one line. The Jewish community, which is only 2% of the U.S. population, we're 13%, and we allow every artist to call our women hoes. But nobody pulls it back uh, because we don't operate out of any real leadership authority. And those who are in authority, we really don't look at as ethicists. Uh, so they have the title of preacher, but not the praxis of one. Uh, and so I think it's, uh, it's up to us to hold ourselves accountable to the music that we listen to. Good afternoon, Dr. Bryant. Yes, sir. Uh, my question is, where are the real African-American leaders? Yes. Now, because most of the time, leaders talking about where for homosexuality, where for Latinos. Mm -hmm. but where are the sound African-American leaders? Yes. I'm talking about you. Yes. Jesse Jackson, he's for everybody. Yes. Obama's for everybody. Yes. So who do we reach out for and say, okay, this is a black leader? Yes. This is an African-American leader. We, we, we are, sir, uh, I, I want to answer it in a larger context. Uh, this is the oldest, this is the oldest leadership black people have ever had. Uh, in two weeks, Reverend Jackson will be 75. Uh, in October, Reverend Sharpton will be 60. Uh, and so we have always had an emergence uh, of young people, wherever there's a revolution, wherever you deal with Russia, whether you deal with China, whether you deal with South Africa, whether you deal with the civil rights movement, it's always young people. And those young people never asked for somebody to deputize them leaders. Uh, they took the helm. Uh, but something has happened for our generation uh, where we have become so softened uh, by a generation of parents who didn't want us to go through the sacrifice they went through. Instead of raising us, they spoiled us. 
Uh, and so uh, we, they, they are here. Uh, regrettably, we have been conditioned for crisis. Uh, so I moved around the country, uh, mobilizing people around Trayvon Martin. I had about 12,000 people uh, came to Sanford, Florida. I had about 20,000 in Miami, 100,000 in Times Square, 40,000 in London. Uh, but after that, you can't find them uh, because we, we get excited over an event but not a principle. Uh, and so the leaders are amongst us, regrettably, we just can't find Rosa Parks. Yeah. Yeah, so so we we got a lot of Dr. Kings. We just need a crisis uh, for that for that to emerge. And my real senses uh, is you really won't see the emergence of black leadership until uh, Obama leaves the White House, uh, because we've gone into cruise control uh, thinking we've arrived. Uh, and so I think the wake up call is going to be when President Obama moves out, because hear this, we don't even have a succession plan. Yeah, of, of who we're going to run to get it uh, within our lifetime. Yes. Um, great presentation, Reverend Bryant. Thank you, ma'am. I, I come from an era where we did sit at the Woolworth counter. Yes. I come from a time when we did march, when we did have movement. But a lot of that urgency was expressed from the pulpit. Yes. The church still has a significant responsibility Absolutely. in this society. This is the place where you can bring and see at any given time the largest collaboration of African Americans. I agree. We have the weight on the shoulders of the church. The weight is there. I, I, the leadership has to be collaborated coordinated and moving in that minivan with a sound bite on the top of it yes and going through the neighborhoods saying get on board mm -hmm. get on board we've got to make a noise yes the weight is on the church i know it's a great task but i know he didn't call you without equipping you so i appeal to you please pull a cross section of the leaders that are that we're looking for yes. they're in the church they're yes. at the pulpit every Sunday morning that comes together I think we can have the movement and the sound bite and we won't have to wait for Barack Obama to leave office before we can put together a succession plan thank you so much Good afternoon. Brian. I really enjoyed your uh, message today. Thank you. But my question is, um, I know Bayard Bruston, I think his name, yes. I hope I'm saying it right, mm -hmm. worked uh, with Dr. King during the um, civil rights era, mm -hmm. and he was openly gay. Is there a role for open gay African Americans today in the civil rights movement? A a absolutely. Uh, but I, I, I want to say to you, um, I want to say t two things, and I want to... Uh, uh, I'm going to give you a preamble to say I'm not politically correct. Okay, so let me let me say that uh, uh, the uh, the mainline civil rights organization have co-opted the gay agenda. My issue is I've not seen it reciprocated. Uh, so uh, African Americans have fought for the equality 
uh, of gay rights uh, or human rights, uh, but I've not seen the, the gay community stand with African Americans with that same allegiance. Uh, so I, I really want to inverse the question, is there room on the gay agenda for black placement? Uh, so I, because I think uh, with the NAACP president, uh, Ben Jealous, uh, 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 Reverend Jesse Jackson, Reverend Al Shopton, in unison with no descending voice, uh, has stood up uh, saying that they are for uh, gay rights, for same marriage, at the risk of losing their black church base. Uh, now, in turn, we've not seen outside of a gay march or for same-sex marriages, I've not seen the gay community say, what are you going to do uh, about uh, urban renewal that in the city of Baltimore, I got 16,000 abandoned homes. Where to gauge the march for that? Uh, so I, I think that it's got to be some level of reciprocal to go back uh, to my brother's question is that we've got leaders who speak for everybody, uh, but we don't have anybody with a singular black agenda. Uh, and I think that that's uh, to go back what he says. But I think to answer your question, yes, there is room uh, for the gay community within the civil rights organizations, but I've not seen it happen on the other side. Yeah. Thank you. Last question. Yes. Hello, brother. Hello. Uh, I tell you, I was thinking I was invited to speak to the Mark Steiner show for the MLK Day. If you're not on a program, I wish you were. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Um, I was 12 years old when the, uh, the Selma thing happened. And so I was a child, and I, I was here in Baltimore. I had to watch uh, those cops uh, trampling my people and their hooves of their horses. And I was a teenager when Martin Luther King was killed. Uh, and the Black Panthers, as you mentioned, uh, used to organize right around the corner from me. I was, grew up in the Troll Projects, and they used to organize right around the breakfast program and other things on Valley Street in East Baltimore. Uh, by the time I became adult, of course, the movement had begun to subside, and that's something that was very disturbing to me. But I uh, have uh, done some research on, on Dr. King. I'm an educator now, and I've done some research on Dr. King, and I'm pretty interested especially in the last phase of the movement, where he was talking about uh, the fight for an economic bill of rights, uh, the fight for economic justice. Uh, and of course, you mentioned uh, the, uh, the Poor People's Campaign. And it seems to me that somewhere along the line, that last piece got dropped. Mm -hmm. uh, last piece, it was the ball didn't get carried, or at least didn't get carried far enough. And one thing that's been on my mind, I've been asking myself and wondering, uh, is there a way we can begin to create a movement of the economically dispossessed mm -hmm. uh, and to recognize that we have to fight uh, not only racial injustice, uh, but economical class uh, injustice as well, yes. especially in light of the fact that now we have certain members of the black bourgeoisie who have, I think, have essentially aligned themselves with the establishment. Mm -hmm. That makes things more complicated than it used to be. Yes. I want to know how we can... Uh, 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 and the option, the possibility of uh, mobilizing the dispossessed, the disinherited, mm -hmm. the people who are sometimes contemptuously spoken of as ghetto, mm -hmm. uh, or whom Bill Cosby called knuckleheads, but whom uh, 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 Jesus regarded as the salt of the earth, and whom Dr. King often spoke of the disinherited children of God. What about these people who are the mass of our people? Yes. 
Thank you so much. Uh, we are, African Americans are, um, with our collective spending power, uh, it would make us the 10th wealthiest nation in the world. Uh, I'm going to use again uh, Baltimore as a hybrid. Uh, if you would uh, uh, consider if we're 76% of the population uh, and there's not a black person uh, who owns a sit down restaurant in downtown Baltimore. I'm not talking about wings and fries. I'm, ta <laughs> I'm talking about with an actual menu without plexiglass. Uh, you, you cannot see that uh, replicated. And uh, you reference, if you go to Detroit, uh, is a soul food restaurant every three blocks. If you go uh, again uh, into the uh, Ninth Ward in Houston, uh, if you go in Atlanta, uh, but we got to go all the way to the uttermost uh, to find somewhere uh, to sit down. I think that it's got to begin when you look at uh, the black banks in Baltimore we don't support. Uh, the black businesses uh, that we don't support. Uh, we still have a, a change of mind that has to happen about Mr. Jones's ISIS colder. Uh, and so I think that the number one enemy uh, for black people is not the economy, is not education, is self-esteem. Uh, if we go back to finding a place to reaffirm who we are uh, in the value of that, it would take us uh, to a whole nother place. Uh, so I think, yes, we can put an economic uh, agenda uh, together, but we've got to be able to do some fundamental things that we can't take for granted like trust each other. Uh, so if, I, if I take up the money today uh, and say that this is uh, for an investment group, uh, you, you know, I mean, everybody uh, in their mind is saying, I wonder where this really going. So uh, I, I think that there's got to be a level uh, of, of trust uh, and transparency that we're able to do that, uh, that they're in the country, only two black hedge funds. Uh, that some, something has to happen on, on uh, uh, wealth development, wealth creation. Senator Ivey, who's with us, comes from uh, the wealthiest black county in America, and we're 40 minutes away and can't get the overflow. If I can't get the cup, give me the salsa. Let me get something. Uh, so something has to happen if we're that close to it uh, that we've got to recondition our minds. Yes. All right. Hi. Um, I just There's another gentleman behind him, behind him. Uh, he been waiting there. Y'all, can, can can we can we go five more? Thank you. Five more minutes, not people. Thank you. All right. Yes, ma'am. Okay. We waiting on you. Yes. Um, I just want to thank you. Thank you. Um, I read a book by Dr. King, and if I'm not mistaken, it was called Where Are We Now? Mm -hmm. And he spoke a lot about separatism. And mm -hmm. where we would be in comparison from then to now. Yes. And I just wanted to hear your take on that. Me? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh. Okay. I, I, I think there are pros and cons to it. Uh, and um, I'm, I'm really uh, fearful and fretful as, as to uh, where we would be if we completely pulled out without an agenda. Uh, I want to go back to my dear uh, senior mother who raised the question about what it is we had to champion. The difference between Dr. King's uh, fight and our struggle in the pulpit is uh, Dr. King and C.T. Vivian and Ralph Abernathy, they fought against visible signs. So the visible signs was we want to sit up front. 
The visible signs was take down uh, colors only. The visible signs were we want to integrate. So now the tactics have to change uh, because we're fighting against that which is invisible. Uh, so it's, it's, it's gone into a realm that you can't necessarily see, which takes a hyper level of education uh, to understand what does it mean that my zip code has been redlined? What does it mean that in the 21215 zip code is more heart attacks, uh, is more breast cancer and more HIV? What does it mean that it's hard for us to keep tenured principals in Baltimore because we're not paying them? What, what does that mean that uh, blacks uh, banks are, in fact, secretly funding check cashing places, but don't want to open up a bank that says Wells Fargo uh, on Biddle Street? So you've got to do a different level of education. So I think I would feel more comfortable if we actually had an agenda. Uh, in the absence of that agenda, I'm for integration. Okay? I, I, I don't know if that makes sense. That's the best way I can say it while this is recorded. Thank you. All right. Okay, thank you. All right, this, this is the last one. Yes. Uh, Mr. Bryan. Yes, sir. Uh, I want you to know that uh, you mesmerized me. Yeah, I kind, want you to sir. know that you're fantastic. Thank you, sir. And I want to make it known to the people in here, if you're looking for the next leader, there he is standing right up there in front of us. That's our Thank next you, leader. Thank and, you. And, and my major concern at this point is with uh, black history. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering why at this point in time uh, it has not been infused in the, the, the overall curriculum in the school system as opposed to giving us one week or one month of black history. Why don't we have it in the books? Tell me your name, sir. My name is Curtis Wooden. Thank you. Yes, Mr. Wooden, let me suggest to you um, that we are the only culture of people that depends on a school system to educate about our culture. Uh, that every other people raise their children in understanding what that struggle is and an understanding. So again, we've got a disconnect and what uh, sociologists have fully written about is that we're raising the first generation of crack babies. Uh, so these generation of crack babies had some crack mamas. Uh, and so there was a gap in the parenting cycle that has been lost. Uh, so a lot of the grandmothers are raising these children uh, because of the AWOL parents. Uh, and so what has to happen is that there has to be a level of education uh, in our black history so that we know that our black history exceeds Dr. King, Maya Angelou, uh, Barack Obama, and Jesse Jackson. Uh, and so that has to be a process uh, for you to be considered a man in the Jewish community, you have to know your history and recite it. Uh, and uh, most of the black people in this generation, forget the history, don't know the Negro anthem. Uh, so we, we, we got to go to a place of educating ourselves and regrettably, ashamedly, the pastors do not. Uh, and so if you can go to many of our churches who will not celebrate or recognize uh, Black History Month or Dr. King's birthday, uh, because this is the most uh, uneducated group of pastors we've ever had. Uh, Do Dr. King set the standard for educational ecclesiastical excellence by getting a doctor degree uh, by 27 years of age. Uh, but now we've got a generation, they're not called doctor, they're called bishop. 
uh, and there is no educational uh, there is no educational requirement for that. Uh, I just go get a robe and get a ring. Uh, and so we, we got to do something that heightens the level of intelligentsia in the pulpit that will then heighten the level of intelligentsia in the pew. Uh, but we've got to begin to educate ourselves. Thank you. On behalf of Dr. Carla Hayden, we thank you, but let's give Reverend Dr. Bryant a Thank you so much.